0: Well, it is good to be with you guys this morning. Um, it is crazy that it is a new year. Uh, can you guys believe it? I, I felt like when we were getting ready for the Christmas Eve service, I, I planned like the songs like two months in advance, you know? And then before, I, I was like, I blinked, and we were having the rehearsals, and Christmas came and went. We uh, are spoiled, though, because we haven't done our secret Santa, because Pastor Matt had his baby. Uh, so if you guys didn't hear, Pastor Matt had his baby, uh, super happy for them, little Scotty, um, and so we still haven't done our Secret Santa with them, so I still get another Christmas redo, so I'm, I'm stoked. We're doing it today. It's going to be great. Um, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, so if you have a Bible, please open it, uh, follow along on your phone, but please read the Word with us. There's power in the Word of God. A little bit of context for our passage this morning. Um, these are letters that Paul, the apostle, has written to a church that he helped plant in Corinth. And this is uh, a letter that Paul's writing in approximately 55 or 56 A.D. Um, This is after Jesus's earthly ministry. um, And Paul is now writing as he's helped plant this particular church. Uh, A lot of the New Testament, if you are new to the Bible, is letters. uh, We call them epistles, Pauline epistles if they're written by Paul. Two churches that Paul is invested in and a leader and, and so on. So that's what's happening right now is Paul's most likely in Macedonia um, Corinth is in Greece. I've had the privilege of visiting Corinth and seeing even some of the ruins of uh, this this town and where these churches, this church would have gathered. And uh, it's pretty amazing what is still preserved in that area there in Greece. And so Paul is writing this. This is called 2 Corinthians. So there is also a 1 Corinthians. And uh, this is written, this is the second letter to that church that we have in our canon of scripture. And it's written about a year after 1 Corinthians. So Paul is kind of checking in. He has some things that he feels he needs to address to the church body there in Corinth. And so he's writing this letter. So I would challenge you with a few things as a Bible student this morning as we read this text. um, That first you would bear in mind that this passage is written to a group of Christians. It's written to a church And to a group of people who are professing Christians who are in a church in Corinth and are in the midst of a very perverse culture, Um, there's a lot of uh, inappropriate activity happening in that culture. In fact, the Acrocorinth, which is a mountain that the foot of the mountain lands right into the city square there in Corinth, Um, we hiked that mountain and there is a temple at the top of that mountain and that is the Acrocorinth Temple. And at this time that Paul is writing, uh, what was happening is in pagan worship, these prostitutes would stay in this temple and they would come down into the city at night, sleep with men of the city and go up and it was being considered worship in the pagan uh, religions. And so Paul is writing to almost like a modern day Las Vegas. Um, that's kind of the comparison, uh, like writing to people that have a church on the strip in Las Vegas. That, that's almost what it's like uh, as far as Um, how sexualized this culture is, how perverse things are in this culture. And he's writing to a group of Christians. And the other thing I would ask you to bear in mind as we read is that this is indeed a letter. So as we read the beginning of what we would call chapter 5 in our modern Bible, Paul is just continuing the thought uh, from the previous chapter. So I would encourage you as a student of the Bible, when you go home, or when you open your Bible tomorrow morning for a time of devotion, and I pray you would to start your day in the Word of God, that you would maybe look at First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter four, or the next chapter, chapter six, and get some context and see where Paul continues in this letter. And I would encourage you to do that uh, each week as we go to different passages, kind of to see some context. But to give you a little bit of context, we're going to back up to the beginning of chapter five. And let's look at some of Paul's main ideas in this letter, just in rapid fire. Uh, Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, many of your Bibles might have a heading that says, Our Heavenly Dwelling. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked." For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. So the first thing that that Paul addresses in this section of scripture is that our dwelling ultimately is not here on earth. And can I get a praise God that this place is not our home, that we have a place in heaven that is being prepared for us. And Jesus himself said, if it was not so, I would have told you. And so we have a a heavenly dwelling that we have to look forward to. And I also love Paul, who is a tent maker by trade, um, also compares our bodies as humans to tents, which is slightly insulting, but also very real and accurate. Amen? Uh, Some of you are older, and you're like, yeah, things are breaking down. Things are, things are uh, uh, sagging. I heard, I heard uh, Pastor Alistair Begg say uh, he had a friend who had a, uh, a furniture problem. And Alistair said, you have a furniture problem? He said, uh, yeah, my chest is in my drawers. <laughs> so there is something to be said about that. When you are older, the, the men seem to, the pants get higher. Like with every, every, every year on your birthday, do you guys like notch it up one? because it's like the like up is one of my favorite Pixar movies and the the old guy in up, you know, his pants are like up above his belly button. So, I don't know. I guess I'll probably be there someday. So, and I'll tell you, I'm not I'm not old, but I'm not 20 anymore and my body doesn't recover the way that it once did nor does it recover from Miguel's junior bean and cheese burritos, which by the way, I came to the sad realization last year Last year was bad for a lot of reasons. This was probably at my top. Um, did you know that a bean and cheese burrito from Miguel's Jr. is 1,400 calories? What are they putting in those beans? It's fat. It's lard. Um, and so our bodies, they, they don't recover. And as you start to get older, you start to see the effects of sin and even the curse in a grander scheme. And what has happened and God's plan for our bodies was never to experience death, never to experience breakdown. But now, as a result of sin, we experience those things. And it was never God's will that we would experience those things. And, uh, you know, we have a, a heavenly dwelling to look forward to. So that's one of the first things Paul talks about. He also says in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is, we would rather be in heaven. So whether we are at home or away, we will make it our aim to please him that is God. This is such a great letter from Paul. Uh, if you jump to verse 11, some of those things we just discussed in mind. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but we, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So he talks about this idea of persuading others of the truth that we've been given. And this is, a, this is uh, as Pastor Michael just mentioned, our vision verse for the, for the year, but also this is such an important and vital aspect of your life as a Christian. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And that means that you speak on behalf of the hope and the reconciliation that there is in the name of Jesus. And that really is our text this morning. So would you look at me, uh, you can look at me too, but would you look with me at verse 17 as we read. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, again from the ESV, it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors. We are. It is not up for debate. Paul is saying emphatically and authoritatively, you are an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, that is, be uh, justified before, be renewed, be made right to God. For our sake, he made him, that is, Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... Again, Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a powerful section. I told uh, Pastor Michael I could probably teach a sermon on every verse that we just read. Each one could take up hours of our time picking it apart, but I'm not going to do that to you. So, And they gave me one Sunday because I'm the worship director. So, Anyway, verse 17, let's look at it together. Again, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, I pray that you would be moving forward in faith and in boldness, knowing that you are a new creation. It's not a reworking of the old. The language that Paul uses is, it's a brand new thing. Many of you have heard, God is doing a new thing. I remember a video that uh, some of my friends and I found back when I was in high school, we were on the worship team, and um, it was like this kid in like a sweatpants suit in the '80s, and he got featured on this TV show, and he was rapping. It's so epic; you gotta look it up on YouTube. It's called "God Is Doing a New Thing," and it's this like 12-year-old kid, and he's wearing like a super '80s like tie-dye like jumpsuit, and he's like, "God is doing a new thing," and it's like the Will Smith vibe. It's so good. So every time I see a new thing in Scripture, I just think of that, that kid wrapping in his sweatpants. But God is doing a new thing, and he has done a new thing. He's made you a new creation. You know, we have some guys in the room who do construction or have done, you know, remodeling. And, you know, if you talk to, like, an old guy that's been doing construction for a long time, they always say, well, we got to do this the right way, right? There's always a right way to do it. And so the right way usually involves more work, Right? Can I get an amen? And how many of you have been the person that doesn't care if it's done the right way, and you just want to go home, and the, the guy really cares, and he's like, we got to do this the right way, you know? Uh, Jim Gaffigan is one of my favorite comedians. He, he, he does that, uh, the, like, that guy voice, like the tough guy. And he was talking about pickup trucks, and he was like, you know what I noticed about pickup trucks? People who drive them are never picking anything up. <laughs> and he goes... That's like walking around with an empty suitcase, and people are like, oh, you're going on a trip? And he's like, no, but I'm the type of guy that would. (laughs) I love that. Nothing to do with our text. But there is a right way to do the job. And let's say you're remodeling your kitchen. Ideally, if you have the funds, and that's usually the biggest hurdle, you would strip it down to the studs or maybe even the the drywall, and, and you would start over. And that's kind of the picture that Paul is painting, is that Christ has made you new. He hasn't, like, reworked the old man. No, the old has passed away, as the Scripture says. The old is gone. Now, we struggle in this flesh... And we struggle in this culture and in this world with the old man, right? Sometimes he sticks his nasty hand out of the grave and wants to reach up and grab your throat. And you have the authority in Jesus to refute those things because you've been made new. So the scripture says that the old has passed away. But yes, we still struggle with temptation and with sin. The word here for creation is katesis in the Greek. And it literally means the act of creating or creation. It's to make something new. It's not a reworking, per se, of the old. The idea here is that Christ is making you new. It's not a mild change. No, he is making everything brand new. Galatians 6.14 talks about this same idea. 6.14 and 15. At the end of 15, Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says, For neither in circumcision or nor anything uh, but a new creation. This idea is seen again in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Would you turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 2? This is such a powerful passage. It's worth our time. Turn two books to your right, and you'll be in Ephesians 2. You have Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1. We're going to read these first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. It says this, And you were, there's the old man, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once, that is previously walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is, the enemy Satan, among whom we all, Paul includes himself in this language, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is Ephesians 2, verse 4. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, so many of you will know this verse, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. I believe that many of us need to be reminded of that truth this morning, that God's grace is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, the word here for created Uh, is a different Greek word, but implies the same, ultimately the same meaning of being created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been made new. The old has passed away, and it's been by God's grace, through faith, that we are saved. And I don't have time to get into all the weeds on how this all works, but I'm thankful this morning that if I've trusted in Jesus... I've been made new. You know, friend, the gospel is simple. And maybe this is a word for some of us in this room this morning, myself included. Stop overcomplicating Christianity. It was not meant to be complex. It is simple by design. And pride oftentimes fuels this desire to get into the weeds and the complexities of every aspect of our faith. And it is not necessary, nor is it something that the Lord is ultimately concerned about. Because we will see in just a few moments, God looks at your heart, and he wants your heart. Christianity is not complicated. So I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to be a biblical scholar on every issue. I love Jesus, and I give my life to him, and I live according to his desire and not my own. That's Christianity. It's not complicated, and maybe for some of you, you feel, you feel overwhelmed. Sometimes maybe you see debates on certain theological issues or doctrines, and you become overwhelmed by them. Can I tell you that those things have value and a proper place, but they are not everything, and most of the time, they're peripheral issues that are not of salvific importance. That is to say, those things cannot and will not save you. The gospel at its core is so simple, and if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a new creation, And it's a newness that doesn't lose its newness. Now, some of you have kids, and you got them really expensive Christmas gifts just a week and a half ago, and those new things have already lost their newness. Can I get an amen? Uh Uh-huh. Little brats. Right? We are like that. And it's really easy to point the finger at kids, but we do the same thing. How many of you get a new car every year? Right? I know some people that get new cars every year, and I'm like, I'll take the old one if you don't want it, because the 2019 model is cool with me. Right? But things in this life are temporary, and new things lose their newness. And in our fleshly pursuits, we get bored and we get tired. But that is not the type of newness that comes in a relationship and being regenerated and being reborn in Christ Jesus. It is a newness that is new for all of eternity. It never loses its power or its significance. And if it loses its, its significance, it's not because Christ has become boring, friend. It's because you have lost focus and I have lost focus. And so I pray that the message of the cross would never become dull to us. In fact, we know, as we have it on the wall, in the, Paul's first letter, he reminds the church of Corinth that the message of the cross... And this is something we must bear in mind as we take this message of reconciliation to the world, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I pray that when we gather into God's house, when we get to sing his praises, when we get to open his word, that those things wouldn't grow dull to us. Because if they do, it's not an issue with the Lord, it's an issue with our heart. And so maybe some of us need to refocus this morning. It's a new year, right? Many people are making New Year's resolutions, and I challenge some of the people in my life, maybe our New Year's resolution should be a little less about us and more about other people. When's the last time you heard somebody that had a New Year's resolution and it had nothing to do with them so much as other people, right? It's always about, well, I really want to get in shape. And then January 2nd, there you are eating a donut, you liar. You don't want to get in shape. right? Oh, everybody's convicted because I think there's donuts outside. Sorry, if you ate a donut on the way in here, I'm sorry. But we make these resolutions, and they are usually all about us. But the gospel is so contrary to the way that the world teaches to live. Instead of being about us, it's about Christ and others. In fact, that is the gospel at its core, that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. For the world, he took the place of man at the cross on Calvary. And the nails that pierced his hands should have pierced your hands, and they should have pierced mine. And we've been reconciled because of what Jesus has done, and it is not by works, not through works, so that no one can boast. And Paul says the old has passed away. You know, Paul, who was Saul before his conversion on the road to Damascus, was persecuting Christians. Saul made it his goal in life to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He was an enemy to God. In fact, when, he, when he's confronted by the Lord on that road, what does the Lord say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you? I know you know it. Say it boldly. You persecute me. And can you imagine that moment of transformation for this man who was committed to be against Christ and realized that the one true God was was standing before him. And everything that he had thought up until that point was wrong. And now Paul, writing this letter some years later, feels a burden that people would take the hope of that message and that reconciliation that is there and available for people, and he would take that message to a world that's in desperate need of hope. Isn't it crazy to think that the guy who's writing this letter at one point in his life heard of Jesus' crucifixion if he didn't see it and thought that guy got what he deserved. Saul, before his conversion, thought of the crucifixion of Jesus as a victory, not in the sense that you and I would think of victory over death. No, Saul thought that Jesus deserved to die because he thought that he was a problem and he thought he was a false teacher. He thought he was a liar. He thought he was crazy. And Paul looked at Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 21 and said, well, he's categorically cursed by God because he's been hung on a tree. And now years later, that same man has been changed. He's been made new. He is a new creation. And you can see it being uh, shown in this text as he writes of how he would desire for us to live in Christ. You know, as we look at the text He says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Before that part of the text, he says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he means that we don't view people or Christ the way that we did before we came to know the Lord. The way that I used to make accusations and think about people was based on appearance and and peripheral things and, uh, you know, things that don't matter and have no substance, right? Our culture is so fixated on image. Image is everything to our culture, And I was having a discussion with some people the other day, and the discussion kind of, you know, led into fashion. And they were talking about um, how sometimes they're intimidated because they'll be around other people that are more fashionable than them. And I thought to myself, man, we all get caught up in, in, may I say, stupid stuff like that, where we're so concerned about the way we look. Now, some of you maybe need to worry about how you look a little more. Okay, Uh, (laughs) the nose trimmers are available at Walgreens. You could—I'm just kidding but we get we become so concerned about how we look and as we age paul was talking about the body this is part of i think the message here is we get so concerned about well i look like this and you know there's wrinkles that i didn't have before and you can thank your kids for that right and there's all these things that are starting to change and for some of you it affects your ability to do things and tasks that you once enjoyed doing but the the message Of the cross is that God desires your heart. And this tent, yeah, it will break down and and it will it will eventually die. And it that's not part of God's plan. In God's plan, you don't experience death, but because of sin, we've been alienated from Him. And so we don't look at others the way we once did. May I say that too many churches are so concerned about image and the way that people will feel when they show up and walk through the doors. And what happens is it is okay to consider how someone will feel. As a pastor here and as a leader here, I want people to feel welcomed when they walk through our doors. We certainly don't want to be the frozen chosen when somebody shows up here and we're like, good morning, welcome to church, I guess, right? If you've ever seen Everybody Loves Raymond, he has his cousin Gerard, and how's a going, Raymond. He talks like that. And at one point, I think there's an episode where Raymond's like complaining about his nasally voice and his wife says, he sounds just like you. (laughs) And Raymond realizes he has a nasally voice. And it all breaks down from there. But we make assumptions and we put too much emphasis on appearance. And what has happened is many churches have become bankrupt. Because they are more focused about how people will feel when they sit in the seats than giving them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have been given, especially to a pastor, a responsibility to teach the word of God. When I die, I will not answer to any of you. I will answer to a God who created the heavens and the universe. And I have to give an account for every word that I said. And so I will give the full counsel of the gospel from this pulpit, as will all the other pastors here, because we believe that ultimately we answer to God alone. And we have to give the truth. We have a message of reconciliation, a message that can change someone's eternal destiny. And the scripture says that you have been called to be an ambassador for the kingdom. And some of you see that and you say, I'm not equipped, I'm not qualified. And I tell you, look at Moses, look at Joseph, look at every man, David, that God used throughout Scripture, and they will have all of their reasons why they were not qualified to do what God ultimately accomplished through them. If you are not qualified, welcome to the club. Every time I teach on Saturday night, I think about going to the bullpen PM, you're in. Just take it. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not up for this. But I know that God is faithful and God is sovereign. And for some of you, it might be not teaching a Sunday sermon. It might be a, a conversation that you know you need to engage with, with someone at work or with a family member. And oftentimes, friend, what keeps us from having those conversations and taking that message and being an ambassador for Christ is pride. And some of you will say, well, what do you mean? Because you are so concerned about being liked by everybody that you're unwilling to give them the very message that they may need. We cannot be concerned about what people think about us. If it triumphs over the gospel, we have a priority issue. Now, I am not saying that you take your soapbox to the office tomorrow and put it in the middle of the cubicles and stand up and say, repent! Maybe. I don't know if I'd recommend that. If you do that, don't tell people I told you to do it, okay? Because I don't want your boss coming and finding me. (laughs) But we are called to be ambassadors. And what's interesting is when you look at the early church and you look at the book of Acts, people did not, these men of God who took the gospel out and took this message of reconciliation didn't ask for permission to speak truth. They just spoke truth. Into every situation, they spoke the truth of the gospel. Is our world in need of truth right now? Truth itself has been challenged to its core. Truth is no longer objective. And our culture now in America says, if you have objective truth, you're narrow-minded and bigoted. But the gospel and Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to talk about narrow-minded? The guy that you're following was narrow-minded in that he said, I am the only way. And the world hates that, and they will mock you and ridicule you for saying that Jesus is the only way. But if you care and love about the people around you, then you will give them the message and the truth of reconciliation that comes through Scripture and through the Word of God. And the reality is that the opposite of reconciliation is alienation, And the world has been alienated from God because of their sin. And just as Paul said in Ephesians, as you and I once walked and lived, we were alienated from the things of God. We couldn't even be in his presence because of his holiness. And our sin had defiled us. But the scripture says that we've been made new. And you have been tasked and given and commanded to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And the crazy thing is, as Paul writes this, in this time in, in the church, there are men in Corinth who are stirring up rumors that Paul doesn't have authority and that he shouldn't be an apostle. And Paul, maybe, as he's writing this and he has to defend his authority given by God, is getting a taste of what Jesus, his Savior, walked through as he was on earth and he came to his own and his own rejected him. And they were making judgments based on Paul's appearance We know from history that Paul was not necessarily an attractive dude, and he had possibly a limp or some sort of physical ailment. Some say he might have had a runny eye. He wasn't necessarily a great public speaker, and it's pretty bizarre because when you read these letters, you would think of this robust, well-spoken man, well put together, but God uses people who are not qualified to get his will done, and so Paul is saying, look, you question my authority, but you base it, and you question it based off of physical appearance, not off of the authority given by God. An example of the way that God views us is in 1 Samuel 16. David, the next king of Israel, is to be anointed, and as Samuel goes to anoint the next king, he doesn't know who it will be. And as he sees all the sons, he looks at Iliab, and he says, surely, and uh, this is Samuel 16, 6, Samuel said, surely, this is the Lord's anointed that stands before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance nor his height. So apparently Eliab was tall. Good for Eliab. But the scripture says the Lord rejected him. The Lord does not look. This is in scripture. Please hear this for Samuel sixteen seven, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Maybe some of you in the past have picked your church and your pastors based off of how they dress and how they look. I have friends who have left churches and have said, quote, I'm looking for something more hip. What? No. Look for something that, that brings truth. Look for a church that teaches the word of God that won't shrink back in the face of adversity. These leaders and these guys who paved the way for you and I as Christians in the early church did so in the face of great adversity, I would argue adversity that you and I have never even tasted, like our lives being at risk for the sake of the gospel. Arkin Hughes says this, as Christians, we, mu- we must be done with such carnal distinctions. If we aren't, we in effect deny that when Christ died for all, all died in him. And we receive and we revive, rather, distinctions that were put away in Christ's death. He's saying that the way that you used to think about people should have died with the old man. Some of you are so concerned about your appearance and what people think of you. And it's pride. You think in every conversation that somebody was trying to take a jab at you. You are so sensitive to everything, and what it does is it stirs up drama, and you become self-obsessed. I've heard my grandma Ann say before, honey, you could be at a football game and think they were talking about you in the huddle. Because we, by nature, are prideful creatures. If you struggle with that constant feeling of inadequacy and feeling like people don't like you, you are too concerned about what people think about you. And can I tell you, friend, people are disappointing, aren't they? Like, you love them, but you're like, man, you kind of stink. People will let you down. For the rest of your life, people are going to fail you. Christ will never fail. But your identity must be found in him. See, to be an ambassador for a kingdom, you have to have right relationship with that kingdom. Kingdoms in the old days didn't send ambassadors to speak on their behalf who were their enemies. No, they sent people who they were in right, good relationship with. In the same way, you must be reconciled to God before you can be an ambassador for his kingdom. You have to be justified, and reconciliation and justification, they go hand in hand. If you want to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God, you must first be justified before him through reconciliation, the reconciliation that comes through the blood of Jesus at the cross. So when we listen to pastors, may it be based on theological accuracy and proper doctrine and not fashion. We look for a good look instead of good doctrine, great sounding music that lacks sound theology. We need to be a people who care about these things. And our culture has propagated this idea that appearance is everything. But the Bible says the complete opposite, that the Lord looks at the heart. In fact, this is ultimately one of the key things that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Think about it. People were looking for a knight in shining armor. Israel, under the persecuting hand of Rome, was looking for a deliverer who would ride in on a horse. And Jesus came on a donkey. Who would be born in a palace. And Jesus was born in a lowly manger. Jesus didn't fit the bill that they expected, and they crucified him for it, because appearance is what the world cares about. But the Lord says, no, look at the heart. And to think that days before the crucifixion, Jesus rides into Jerusalem And people are laying the palm branches out before him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise to God. Because they thought that Jesus would be this deliverer that would deliver them from the hand of Rome. But what people did not realize, what Israel did not realize, and what non-believers don't realize is that their enemy is much greater than persecution from Rome or their appearance issues or their insecurities. They have an ultimate enemy that is sin and death. And Jesus conquered those things at the cross, but he didn't fit the bill and he didn't fit what people expected, so they crucified him. And it's easy for us to point our self-righteous finger at those who called, crucify him, crucify him, but friend, can I tell you, as heartbreaking as it is, if you and I had been standing in that town square that day, more than likely you and I would have been shouting, crucify him too. Wrapped up in our sin, and our pride, we would have been right there shouting, crucify him. The very savior that came into the world and the scripture says that he came to his own and his own rejected him. And when you look at the cross, do you see a savior who took your place? Or do you see a savior that's far off and distant and removed from your life and your situation? When Jesus bled at that cross, he bled for you. When they pierced his hands with those nails, They should have been my hands. I deserved to die. You deserved to die. But Jesus took our place. And so when Paul says in the scripture that we are ambassadors, in 21 he says, for our sake he made Jesus to be sin, that is, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This text has been butchered by faith teachers and and word faith teachers all around the globe. What this text means is that there was a trade that took place. You deserved to die on that cross, but Jesus took your place, and instead of you getting hell and eternal separation from God, you received Jesus' righteousness. His righteousness is credited to you. Though you deserved that punishment, You receive the righteousness of Christ. It is so profound. But it is so easy for you and me to sit in church on Sunday and hear the pastor say that Jesus took your place at the cross and it be totally disassociated from our heart. And we know it here, but we don't know it here. And you can know all the scriptures and all the right things to say. And God couldn't care less about them if you don't love him in your heart. I grew up in church. I knew all the right answers in Sunday school. And it means absolutely nothing. When I was in college, I studied abroad in England and I had a professor named Stephen. And I remember towards the end of our class, it was a New Testament class and we were doing the Gospels. And we were going through the crucifixion account. And Steve was a very jolly guy. He was really happy-go-lucky. And I remember we got to the crucifixion account, and he couldn't even read it. And I remember being so struck by that. And I haven't talked to Steve in 10 years. But I wonder if he has any idea how much of an impact that moment had on my life. Because as I sat there as a young man in school to get my theology degree, wanting to know all the right answers, I got to understand how all this works, predispensationalism, regeneration, you name it. I wanted to know how it worked. And I feel as though the Holy Spirit in that moment spoke to my heart and said, that is what it looks like to love me. And Steve will probably never know unless he watched this message. Hey, Steve. How big of an effect that had on me, that moment where I watched a man who truly understood what Jesus did for him at Calvary. And it broke him down to tears to think about our Lord and Savior being whipped and beaten and ridiculed and mocked and spit on. Because Steve looked at that text and saw himself. And he saw that he should have been the one that was receiving that punishment. But Christ took our place. Chapter 518 says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, with this in mind, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Arkent Hughes says this, Christian, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away, out of existence. The eternally the eternally new has come. The law has been written on your heart. You're delivered. What then is required of you? He calls it gospel regard for Christ as the crucified, risen, reigning, glorious Savior, and gospel regard for your brothers and sisters in Christ as new creations in Christ, liberated from bondage of sin and living out the glories of the new covenant. As I was reading that, A picture that I had in mind, and I I suppose a point for application for you this morning, is if you are in a relationship with someone, and there are things that they've done in their past, far be it from you to bring those things up and throw them in their face. And sometimes in our marriages, we do that. Shame on us. When we say, honey, I forgive you, you better forgive her. You better forgive him. And you let it die. That's the kind of forgiveness that Christ has given you. And you are called to give that forgiveness to others. And it is difficult, isn't it? It's the hardest with the people you're closest to. Now, I work with family. I work with my brother, Nathan. Nathan has seen my highest highs and my lowest lows. Because we've grown up together. And that can make relationships complicated. But true forgiveness, the forgiveness that's been given to you through the cross of Jesus Christ says, I won't bring that up again because I've forgiven you for it and it's done with. Amen? So that's just a little side note that's not in my notes. But if you need to work on forgiveness in your heart, you need to ask the Lord to do that work. Because forgiveness will always hold you back. Unforgiveness, excuse me, will always hold you back. Colossians 1, says this, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and evil deeds, now you have been made right. You were formerly alienated from God, but through the blood of Jesus, you've been made right. Alienated, the word that he uses here is to be shut out from fellowship and intimacy. And through the cross, you've been brought back in and now you can experience relationship, right relationship with God. You know, Philippians 1.21 says this. Many of you will know this verse. For to me, this is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about that statement. To live is Christ. If you cannot hold on to that first part and declare it from your heart of hearts that to live is Christ, you cannot hold on to the promise that follows. If you want death to be gained for you, you must first be reconciled to Christ and understand that to live ultimately is to be in Christ. How many of you can look back at the way you used to live and say, wow, I was dead in my sin? I was dead in my sin, but God being rich in his mercy has reconciled us through the cross. Our final verse for this morning, verse 21 says, uh, let's read from 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. There is the commission that you've been given, Matthew 28. Therefore, uh, go and make disciples of every nation. This is the duty on your life as a Christian, to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that is Christ Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of Jesus. I pray that you take that to heart this morning. If you take nothing else away from this text this morning, may you know that you know that your duty in this life is to be an ambassador for the hope of Jesus Christ. Our world is in desperate need of hope. I, I think for me in my life, I've never seen it as bad as it is right now, not in our culture. It is so bad. People are in desperate need of something that has substance that will actually satisfy the longing of their soul. And they look for that fulfillment and that purpose and that meaning in everything but God. And I heard, um, oh, he's a great theologian that I listen to all the time, Uh, Daryl Harrison from uh, Just Thinking Podcast, great theologian. He said the other day on Twitter, it is amazing to me how culture is more than willing to listen on how to live from culture. They're totally open to receiving advice from culture, but from God who created them, no way. Culture is always open to to receiving advice from culture. And yet the God who puts breath in your lungs says this is how you live, and culture says no way. We are so prideful, and sin has blinded us And the Bible takes this message and this picture and says, when you come to know who Christ is, when you are regenerated, when you're reborn in Jesus, it's like the scales fall off. And this is what Paul is talking about. You see Christ for who he truly is for the first time at that moment of conversion. When you realize, I need a Savior, and it's Jesus. Amen? And so I pray that this morning, the name of Jesus holds power, because it does. And to you in your heart, you know that's where, my, that's where my life, the very breath in my lungs comes from. It comes from Jesus. We must be reconciled to God to be an ambassador. You have a message of hope that you can take to the world this morning. And I will challenge you and say this. If you are not being obedient, today is the day to make that change and start being obedient to the call that God has put on every one of your lives. It's not just the pastors that stand up here or the worship leaders or the people that are well-spoken. No, every person that calls on the name of Jesus is then tasked with being an ambassador. And I would challenge you with this. You wanna be a good ambassador? Know your king. Because a good ambassador goes and he speaks on behalf of his king and his kingdom and he knows what they want and he knows what they need. And so I pray that you would know Christ well so that when you go and speak on his behalf to a world that's in desperate need of a Savior, you would represent him well. And as I was studying this text this morning, it gave a whole new light to the meaning of this scripture. I have a duty to be ambassador for Jesus Christ. So, what am I doing with that good news of reconciliation? What are you doing with it this morning? Because you can come in here and warm a pew and we appreciate it, but it means nothing for eternity if you don't then take that good news out to a world that's in desperate need of a savior. Amen? Amen. And I would say this. There are too many people filling the seats of churches on Sunday mornings in America and their Christianity stops right there. They go to church. I'm a Christian. You can stand in the garage. You're not a car. So if you come and you sit here on Sunday morning, I commend you for that faithfulness. But it's got to be a heart change. I was saying this earlier, and I don't even know if I finished it. But as a kid growing up in church, I had the head knowledge to a certain extent. I don't know it all by any means, please. Uh, my, sometimes I listen to other guys speak, and I, I go back to the unqualified thing. <laughs> and I can know it here. But until the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ transforms my heart, it means nothing. And so I pray that if you are in Christ and you're secure in that this morning and you know that you love the Lord and that you're serving him with your life, that you would continue to be faithful, that you would lean on the Holy Spirit for everything that you need for the strength to persevere. If you don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. I pray that today would be the day where you repent of your sin, you realize a need for a Savior, and you call on his name, and he is faithful to answer that call. But it won't be easy. All the Christians in the room said amen. It won't be easy, but it's so worth it. And it's very appropriate that we're going to take communion together this morning, if you have your elements. If you do not have communion, uh, please raise your hand, and the ushers will get you communion now. Communion is something else that we must preserve the sacredness of communion. We have a few hands up. Some of you have been sitting in church your whole life like myself, and you've taken communion more times than you can count. But I pray in light of this morning's text, in light of the word of God, God's goodness and his faithfulness to you as his child, that you would take a moment and really think about what we're about to partake in. He took your place at the cross. And the scripture says this, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. scripture goes on to say that then jesus took the cup of the new wine of the covenant he said as often as you drink this do this in remembrance of me as his blood was poured out on the cross it was in my place it should have been my blood and jesus spilled his blood for us so as we take this may we remember that father thank you thank you for your word Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are always faithful to show up and to minister and to work. We thank you that your word is powerful and complete. Lord, we thank you that you will complete the good work that you started in us, new creations in Christ. Thank you that you will hold us fast. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We worship you this morning. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you this morning, that they would make things right this morning, that they would cry out to a God who cares and hears. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have sung this song many times, but I think sometimes there's value in just going over the lyrics for just a moment. The song says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. You could say, Jesus must hold me fast. And the chorus says, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. I couldn't think of a better song to close our time this morning. This work of reconciliation and the hope that you have is rooted in Jesus and he is the anchor for your soul. And the song ends so beautifully and simply says, he began a work in me and he'll complete a work in me. So as we worship, as we sing together, I pray that you wouldn't leave. I pray that you'd stay and be a part of this corporate worship through singing. And that you would be part of the fellowship that happens. And that we would offer our praises now to the Lord because he's worthy. Amen.